0: Father, what a joy it is and a privilege to hold our Bibles and to open them and to read stories about our wonderful Lord Jesus. Would you, would you take your word today, Lord, as you do so often, and encourage us and strengthen us? We need it. We live in a such an unstable world, and we're we're overwhelmed with the images of the week in Nepal and the horrible tragedies as the ground has shaken there, thousands dead. Even in our own country, earthquakes in unusual places like Michigan today, this week. And Father, we, we've seen the images of downtown Baltimore and the tragedy of what, what happens when sinful hearts don't know Jesus. And Father, we, just, we need to be strengthened today. We need to be encouraged. We need to know and be reminded of what a wonderful Lord Jesus we have and that he's the master of the universe. Would you please encourage us with with your word today? It's in Jesus' name I ask these things and pray. Amen. About a week ago, I had a privilege of peeling out for a couple days on a Thursday and a Friday and being Joe Parent. And I drove and accompanied as a a chaperone to my son's um, history class. ...trip to Williamsburg, Virginia. I always enjoy going to Williamsburg. Janet and I have spent a number of anniversary trips there. I, mean, I hadn't been for quite a while. My favorite part of the trip was um, when I had about an hour of free time from the kids... and, and ...right before we ate lunch, but it was during the lunch hour. Um, and I was able to just walk around town. And as soon as we were released for this free time... ...we were to meet somewhere to eat at 1 o'clock as a group. And we had one hour of free time. I headed out to the gunsmith shop and I hit it at just a great time. He was leaning with his elbows on a white picket fence there and it was lunch hour and very few tourists were there and uh, a friend of mine is an acquaintance of that primitive gunsmith there and we connected and engaged in great conversation and he invited me into the back part of his shop and I just really enjoyed um, taking in his craft to take that iron piece of metal and to beat it around a rod and then showed me how they rifle it and he had a barrel of a of a flintlock rifle in in production and he just we talked and and then to see the finished product and I was so awed with his craft and I had a few more minutes and on my way I stopped by the cabinet maker shop and enjoying woodworking so much and to watch them and and engaged in conversation and I headed up the street to lunch just having enjoyed the last 45 minutes so much and so taken with just the skill and the craft, how these guys with just the the simplest of tools and the simplest of materials could make such beautiful products. And, And as I walked down the street, I saw a tree. And um, it's this tree. I took a picture of it, and my mind began to stir within me, and I realized that there was something really remarkable about this tree. Here I, w- I was thinking about these craftsmen, and then I looked at that tree, and I thought, that is a most remarkable tree, and you can't really take it in just from that picture. But what struck me about that tree was how it was crafted. It's a huge tree and it has huge branches and a couple of those branches, the one up on the top left goes probably for 30 feet out, almost parallel to the ground and except for some fiber where it's attached to the tree, there's no cable hanging it, there's no prop sticks holding it up, there's no 45 degree angle brackets holding it and I stood there and I looked at that tree and my heart stirred within me. Though I was impressed with the gunsmith and the cabinet maker, I just had a moment of worship and I was impressed with my Lord Jesus. I thought, no craftsman can build that tree. No man can take a maybe, let's say, a 4,000-pound branch, a couple of tons that branch has to weigh, stick it to the side of the trunk, run that branch out 20, 30 feet almost parallel to the ground and not even prop it up or hang it with a cable. That is some incredible skill. My mind went to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1, and uh, starting with verse 15 in Colossians 1, there's a section there about the wonder of our Lord Jesus and his mastery of the universe. It says there that all things were made by him and for him. It says there that by his power, he holds all things together. I'll tell you how that branch can do that. I'll tell you why no engineer can make that happen. Because he just thinks it and by his power, it just holds on. What a remarkable thing. Sometimes we joke around when we see things like that and our hearts are stirred. And we say, wow, what a, what a beautiful thing happened when that big bang took place. You know, it couldn't have happened by an explosion. We have just the most remarkable Lord Jesus. Do you know that? Well, we've finished the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going into Matthew chapter 8, and I want you to be impressed with Jesus today. I just want you to be impressed with the Master of the Universe. You see, what happens is Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount on the side of the hill there, that Galilean countryside. As you well know, he's been preaching a long sermon. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most extended passage of, of the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll know from your study of the New Testament that there are repeated themes in the life and ministry of our Lord that, that will come back up that are part of the Sermon on the Mount. These are repeated themes. Concepts that our Lord hammers home in His teaching ministry. You need to be reminded also that the Sermon on the Mount was early on, this recording of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, early on in the public ministry of our Lord. Remember, we, it wasn't long before we entered into our Sermon on the Mount series, which has been some months, that we encountered our Lord's baptism when John baptized Him. We will know in the weeks ahead that He's still gathering His disciples around Him. This is early on in His three-year ministry. And what's going to happen is, as he concludes this message, he's going to leave the mountainside and head out. And let's pick it up with the last couple verses of chapter 7. And notice it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, that would be the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, the ESV says. Astonished. That's more than just a little bit wowed. They know that they have just heard something that they have never heard before. One of the reasons that they're astonished, it says in verse 29 of chapter 7, is that he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. You see, they were used to their religious teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, students of the Old Testament, particularly the writings of Moses, were, were held in high esteem. They also had the Psalms and the Prophets. And they studied these scriptures, they taught these scriptures, they memorized these scriptures. But as is so often common with intellectuals and, and experts, there is somehow almost like a pride in indecisiveness. It's almost like it's like, well, we could believe this and it means this, but we think it means this. And, and they were used to the, the, the talking and the endless lectures of their scribes. And when Jesus spoke, there was just something different. He spoke with authority, and indeed he did. Remember, he said, you have heard it said, and he would quote Moses, remember? You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Or you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he was quoting Moses. His entire audience would have known that. And yet, what did he do? He went on to add to the word of God. But I tell you, and, and what kind of authority is that? And so as the gathering disperses, the people are awed. They're just astounded at the kind of teaching. And I think they're really taken by this guy. They're just like, I have never heard anyone teach quite like that. I think they just didn't want it to end. And so we see as we begin chapter 8, verse 1, that when he came down the mountain, great crowds followed him. We are going to see now that Matthew chapter 8 has just a stunning demonstration of the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in his life and ministry was deliberate. And here he has this crowd. He has just been teaching them. They're astonished. They wonder, what kind of man is this? What kind of teacher is this? And immediately he begins To give exhibit A and exhibit B and exhibit C. You want to know who I am? You want to know why I can speak with such authority? Even though everyone loves their indecisiveness. Even though there's a lot of broad, wide road people out there that are all inclusive. And they say, everybody's right. All the prophets are right. And here's another good prophet. And no, no, Jesus is a narrow road prophet. Remember, his gospel is an exclusive gospel. He's just taught them that. Few there be that find it. And you're going to see in chapter 8 that he is an incomparable Lord Jesus. Let's read it in its entirety. Get ready to hold your finger in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to flip to Mark's gospel in chapter 5 when we get to one section. Because though Mark, and you know this, right, that the gospels are written from different perspectives and the lights kind of flash on. When you read them from their different perspectives, you get more detail. And Mark is really known as kind of the Reader's Digest condensed gospel. It's the most brief of all the gospels. It reads the simplest. It's really a good gospel if you give out your Gideon New Testament and somebody says, well, where should I start reading this? If they don't think to start at the beginning with Matthew, which is a long book, show them where Mark is and say, you know what? If you want a brief summary of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, read the gospel of Mark. It's the shortest most bullet-pointed gospel. However, on a couple of these occasions, Mark uh, must have found that some of these stories were his favorite stories. Um, and one of these is, is one of my favorite stories in all of the life and ministry of Christ. And he gives extensive 20-verse detail to what Matthew just gives five verses to pretty interesting. Let's begin and let's read. So you got the picture, right? He's done with his sermon on the Mount. He's leaving. The crowds are awed. They're astonished. And in rapid fire succession, our Lord is going to do some things to demonstrate his power that is going to just take them off the charts with their awe. And he is going to show them that he is the master of the universe. So when they came down from the mountain, chapter 8, verse 1, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. We'll not look at that today. That's Leviticus chapter 13. It's quite interesting. Verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him appealing to him. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, that would be the Israelites, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember, Jesus came unto his own and his own knew him not. Speaking specifically of the Jews, we have a little bit of a glimpse, too, of the horror of life in eternity future without Christ. This weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me tell you, I assure you, that's not just a spiritualist language. It's not just picturesque metaphor. It's the reality, the physical torment of the reality of a real eternal lake of fire. And to the centurion, Jesus said, "'Go, let it be done for you as you have believed.' And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered then Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick.' And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah 53. All we like sheep. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Quoting from Isaiah. We're going to skip verses 18 to 22 and come back to those another day. Verse 23, another incident. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew's account now of the demoniac. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce... That no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs, of many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, going into the city... They told And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I said five verses. It's 28 to 34. Do the math. What is that? Six or seven verses. If you turn to Mark's gospel and chapter 5, I want us to read 20 verses of his account of the crazy man up in the tombs at Gadaree. It is just a most remarkable story. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, and it demonstrates the incredible power of the master of the universe. It begins in verse one of Mark's gospel in chapter five. Hold your Matthew place because we're going to end up going back to Matthew, but just listen and let's... Uh, let's go ahead and read this extensive passage because it gives us even more detail. Now, in Matthew's account, it says there were two men. In Mark's account, it says there was one man. All right. Evidently, one of the two men was predominant over the others, and that's what Mark recorded. It's not that the Bible contradicts itself. It's just that it's from a different writer, a different perspective. He saw the battle take place from a little different angle. They came to the other side of the sea, Mark 5, 1, to the country of the Gerasenes. It's this different word used for the same place in Matthew's gospel. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. cutting himself with stones. Can you picture that? Up above their village, this wailing and this screaming and the cutting and the the horror, and they would get sick of it and they would put a team of strong men together to go lash him down, to cover him, maybe try to sneak up behind him and throw a blanket over him and wrap him with chains and cover him up and he would just unleash on them and shatter the chains and and break their jaws and, and just they left him there and they didn't know what to do with this disgraceful human being who lived in the tombs. Night and day, verse 5, it says, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's a most pitiful man. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? ESV says, I adjure you, I beg of you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what, was, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, and look at this, and he was clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what, they, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region and they didn't know who this was. They didn't know who they had on their hands. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said, Jesus did not permit him, but he said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I want to tell you, you could underline that Bible as your personal evangelism strategy. Here's what you do. You go home to your friends and your family and you tell them what great things Jesus has done for you and how he's had mercy on your sinful soul. That'll work. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, he does it, how much Jesus had done for him, I guess so. And everyone marveled. You see that guy over there? He was the guy who was up in the tombs. Looks normal to me. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17, isn't it? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Well, I would say that our Lord has entered into an ultra-kinetic ministry here immediately of total movement and energy and ministry nonstop. In chapter 8, He's been teaching. Now they come down. The crowds are astonished. They haven't seen anything yet. And here it goes. And I want us to be so impressed with Jesus from chapter 8. In fact... I want to disclaimer my three-point outline today, um, simply because I'm not sure it's mine. It might be Shoopy's, I don't know where I got it. It's been written in my Bible for years, I've preached it across Malawi, and um, it works here for us this morning. It could be mine, if you really like it, it's mine. All the subpoints, everything packaged around it is mine. Um, but I try to always be very careful that if I'm preaching an outline or a part of an outline that's not mine, I try to always tell you that. It doesn't happen too often, but it's possible. And I, I got convicted that possibly I wrote this outline down listening to someone else. But it works well for our purposes today. The first thing I want you to see about the master of the universe is that Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness. Number one, Jesus demonstrates His power over sickness. He's been teaching, and now He's going to give visual aid... To his authority and his power. You want to see something? You want to be impressed with Jesus? Well, watch this. And it happens immediately. They start heading down the mountain. And all of a sudden, this man with leprosy. Number one, we see a pitiful follower. I call him a pitiful follower. I want you to see why I think that he is a man of faith. He's already, I think, a man who has bought into the message of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. We're back in Matthew chapter 8. And behold, a leper, verse 2, came to him and knelt before him, saying... Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus looks at him and says, I will be clean. The audience must have just been stunned into silence. You have to know that leprosy... Was the AIDS of the day? It was a horrible, horrific uh, disease of melting the flesh. One commentary I was reading, describing leprosy that I hadn't read before, talked about how uh, the the appendages, of course, would would be effective tips of fingers. Ultimately, entire fingers would fall off. You would lose your ears. Your nose would end up being just a hole in your face. Your eyebrows and would cause a, the skin to degenerate until it started to fall off your face. And the commentary said it. It it made people result in a lion-like face look. they take a human's face with a pointed nose and ears that stick out and melt it all in until their face looks smushed in, wrinkled up like some kind of a lion with their bare nostrils. It was a horrific disease. It was regulated in the Old Testament because it was at some level contagious. Those with leprosy were often... Excommunicated, and they were pushed outside of their villages. They often communed up for survival and for safety and for begging. And this man evidently saw a crack in the crowd, and he comes running in in front of Jesus, and he says, I know that you can make me whole. He had faith. He understood who he was dealing with, and Jesus says, I will be clean. Bam! I'd like to see Muhammad do that. I'd like to see Joseph Smith do that. I'd like to see the Pope do that. They are not the masters of the universe. This is Jesus. He's the one who was present before the universe was created. He was present in the Godhead, the second member of the Godhead. It tells us clearly that he was part of creation. In Genesis, it even uses the pronoun that let us create. There's a plurality in creation and he's involved and as I've already quoted and mentioned from Colossians chapter 1 that all things were made even describes as though it were all made by him though we know God the Father and we know the Holy Spirit and all three members of the Godhead were active in creation. And he could speak and he could make a he could make a crumbling melting degenerating disgusting lion-like face instantly whole. I'd have loved to have seen that. Jesus immediately tells him to don't tell anybody. Uh, Bible, Bible students wonder why Jesus said that. That's a repeated phrase. We'll talk about it a little bit more in the future. A couple suggestions real quick on the fly here would be, number one, Jesus felt like the crowd was big enough already. And if he goes around talking about, this is, remember, early in the ministry and the signs and wonders ministry of our Lord is beginning to activate that the masses will just be unmanageable for these communities. Secondly, it could be That when Jesus sent him to the priest, because he knew that this man was ceremonially ceremonially unclean, he needed, remember, this is still Old Testament, even it's pre-cross. And so our Lord is just keeping the law... He didn't come to take away the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he tells him, go see the priest. Leviticus 13 details it. And the priest then will pronounce you whole and clean. And you will now be able then officially to be welcomed back to your family. And Jesus wanted him to be able to do that without question. Give this the priest. But Jesus knew that the priest didn't believe in who he was. He already felt opposition from the religious leaders, and it's possible he didn't want word of the healing to get to the priest before the guy got to the priest so that they could think of a way that they could reject this guy and not believe him. I don't know. We don't know. The text doesn't say. The second thing we have is is we have the master of the universe, Jesus. Demonstrating his power over sickness, number one, with this pitiful follower, this leprous man. Secondly, a powerful foreigner. That starts with verse 5, this centurion from Capernaum. Um, he comes and it, look at the verse 6. It's, a, it's loaded with feeling, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. I've often thought on my ministry at bedsides, especially when paralysis is involved, that when people are injured and in, in the old days, when people were injured and fell off their mule and broke their neck or broke their back, often they just died. And nowadays we're used to people with paralysis living a long time in the old days that didn't happen. We don't know the details. Perhaps his servant fell off a ladder Working for him around his home or around his barns. He had servants, and this guy was paralyzed. We don't know what kind of paralysis it was, but it says that the paralysis was causing him to suffer terribly. Perhaps he broke his spine up high enough that it was it was tampering with the electro electrodes in his body that fed the brain that, that helped helped him get his breath. You know how paralyzed people sometimes they can't get their breath lungs and their diaphragm to work. We don't know, but he's suffering terribly. And this centurion... Though he's not a Jew, he's a foreign or he's a Gentile. He's there away from home as a Roman soldier and he's got soldiers and he's in, he's in charge of a group that are occupying the country. He's not a well-favored man. And this is another interesting point. If you go to Luke chapter 7, which you don't have to do right now, you'll find that Luke's account of this says that the centurion sent two Jewish elders to go talk to Jesus. The centurion was evidently worried about his position as an occupier of his homeland to come and ask a favor of this great prophet that he sent the Jewish elders. Regardless, Matthew, again, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's just additional detail that Luke gives as he researched and gave his historical account. Luke was not an eyewitness. Matthew chose to write it in the context that it was all about the centurion. And I'm reminded, even as Matthew gives shorter accounts of this in his extensive gospel, than some of the other Gospels gave, he's abbreviating and he's going right to the point. The centurion sent and came to Jesus, or he came to Jesus, he came in a representative form. I would say ultimately, Jesus ends up having a face-to-face with him after these elders met. And the centurion cares so much about this paralyzed servant of his, and he emphasizes his unworthiness. I am not worthy to come to you. But I understand who you are. And Jesus commends his faith. That's where he makes that powerful statement. Let your eyes go down to verse 11 and 12. I tell you, he says in verse 10, I have not seen anyone in Israel with a faith like this foreigner, like this Gentile. And I tell you, many will come from the east, the west, and recline at the table with with Abraham and his sons, identifying with the people of God. That's a missions mandate right there. That's a reminder that God came to seek and to save all who are lost everywhere of all people. And so Jesus speaks. I love this. He reminds them of the faithlessness of Israel is going to end up in their judgment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. End of verse 12 and in verse 13. And the centurion said to Jesus, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That is impressive. Are you kidding me? A spinal cord that has been severed or some other kind of paralysis that has come on from poison or a snake bite and the cells and the tissue is restored and the nerve endings are healed. That's the master of the universe. Janet and I have... uh, a spot that we like that's in the hallway of the University of Maryland Medical Center in downtown Baltimore and there for a number of, a couple of years now has been a display. We have to return there co- uh, about twice a year now um, for her semi-annual checkups um, after her kidney transplant there. Janet's, my wife, has a kidney transplant. And there on display is a big mural, wall poster, life-size uh, picture of the head of surgery who implanted Diana Martin's kidney into Janet's body. And we really liked that guy. He's an old West Virginia boy. He's head of surgery. We were watching a documentary one time on the face transplant that they did at the University of Maryland. Pioneering the face transplant. It's unbelievable. And there was our doctor. We could see him among the group. The surgery for that face transplant lasted like 36 hours nonstop. And they had layers and teams of surgeons. and, And on the documentary we watched every once in a while, we could see our doctor. And there on that picture, we stand. I like to stand next to the guy, and Janet's taking my picture in that and and it kind of looks like we're buds, you know? (laughs) And and we say, next to Jesus, I'm going to tell you something. I don't care how well you can try to sew somebody else's face on somebody else's face, or how you can put a suture, a kidney in, And a ureter, and it begins to spurt urine while it's even on the operating table, and it kicks back on. Those surgeons can't make any of that stuff happen. And they can't make a spinal cord go back together. You need to be impressed with this stuff. And the crowds were impressed with this. This is Jesus, the master of the universe. This is not just a good prophet. This is not just a really great guy who knows the Bible. We must hurry on. Notice Not only does he heal this pitiful follower, this powerful foreigner, but he he gets engaged in a personal friendship. And when Jesus enters Peter's house, verse 14, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick, he heals her. And she begins to serve them. And then it says that later then there was a huge public following and he impacted all of them and he begins to heal them. It says in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. There's a public forum, a public following and he's just healing at random among the public as they line up, casting out demons. And then it ends this section, verse 17. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It was prophetic fulfillment. This is the Lord Jesus. And he literally is doing what is still going on today spiritually from Isaiah 53. We'll talk more about Christ's actual ministry of miracles and healing and whether or not that healing gift is for today, whether people can have that same kind of gift. There is no question that God can heal and that God answers prayer and can heal miraculously. Um, But what we have here in Isaiah 53 where it says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Some people try to claim that for healing today physically and I don't doubt that God can heal but that is speaking specifically about healing from sin. We'll talk more about Isaiah 53 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ being the sufficient sacrificial lamb. How he laid down his life for our sin. But it was prophetic fulfillment. We need to wrap up Suffice it to say, the next section, verse 23 through 27, this is where Jesus calms the sea. The disciples are out in a boat. This is a seasoned group of fishermen. And not only does the master of the universe demonstrate, Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness. But number two, I want you to see that Jesus demonstrates his power over the sea. He demonstrates his power over the sea. He's in the boat. He's asleep. You know the story well. Most of you You've heard the story before. The disciples are afraid they're going to drown. They are absolutely terrified. They shake him awake all this long day of ministry. He's tired and weary. They wake him up. He stands up and he says, Shalom, peace. And he calms the sea. Well, the one who can speak it into existence can speak it into stillness, right? No wonder. Nothing to be surprised out about there, but everything about which to be incredibly awed. Thirdly, I want you to see that Jesus demonstrates his power now over Satan. And this is the story that we've read Mark's account. you got the crazy man that we've already described up in the tombs. I want you to notice what Matthew says happens as Jesus comes. These two demoniac men are there, demon-possessed men. They are so fierce that people avoided the area. They couldn't even pass by that area. And behold, they cried out. This is the demon screaming out from within them. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And then there's the herd of pigs and 2,000 hogs become demon-possessed. Jump off the edge of the cliff. There's a very steep bank above the Sea of Galilee there. You can visit this area today even. And the hogs go off the cliff and drowned. And everybody always wants to know, why was it right for Jesus to ruin that guy's swine herd? And what's the ethic there of ruining who reimbursed that farmer? Jim Shoopy will stay up front and answer those questions after the message. And any other questions you have about this message, all right? And anything that was gotten wrong, he'll straighten out. All right. I don't know. That's pretty crazy. 2,000 hogs, that's a lot of pigs, man. And they're demon-possessed and they go chunking off the cliff and they drown. But I'll tell you one thing really quickly. I think it's interesting as you look at that. You know, a lot of people always wonder about the spirit world and these guys clearly from the text, you can tell that they were demon possessed and that their emotional, psychological illness, if you want to call it an illness, was generated somehow demonically. How they opened the door to that, I do not know. Were they disobedient to their parents and teachers and get involved in things they never should have got involved in to the point where Satan had an opening and could take and overwhelm their lives? I don't know how they broke down, but they are incredibly broken men and we have some insight let me just quickly observe four things about demons that might be helpful to you that might be of curiosity to you the first thing I want you to see is that demons recognize Christ not only secondly not only do demons recognize Christ but demons know who he is and believe in who he is it's not a saving faith. James chapter 2, verse 19 says that the demons even believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and they shudder. They don't believe it for a transformative faith. And I would build a case that demons are stuck in their position. They cannot get saved. He didn't come to, to redeem demons. He came to redeem humans when he died on the cross. But they say, have you come here? They cry out and they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? The third thing you know about demons is that they know that they are doomed for eternity. And you can read about the great abyss and the great lake of fire where Satan and his demons and his minions and the the great abyss are all going to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire forever. And they know it. And they see Jesus coming. They recognize him. They know who he is. And they say, what did you come to us for? You're going to put us in the abyss. You're going to judge us before our time. They know about this stuff. We know that much. And fourth and finally, insight about demons here. They evidently do not like to be disembodied. They like to indwell living bodies. They are disembodied spirits themselves. We don't really know much about demons. Many people speculate that they are fallen angels That when the great conflict and when Lucifer rebelled in his pride, that he took a host of angels with him and that they became demons. We don't really know too much about that. All I know is that when Jesus casts out these demons, the guy sits there and he's clothed and in his right mind. And he doesn't want to let Jesus out of his sight. Would you? And the guy evidently has one leg over the side of Jesus' boat. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 where are you going? And the guy guy says, I'm going with you. Wherever you're going, that's where I'm going. That's a good guy. Wherever Jesus is, that's where I'm going to be. Jesus says, no, no, no. You just go home. And you find your friends and your family. And you tell them what great things I've done for you today. And how you've had mercy shown you today. That is a beautiful Lord Jesus. To take a pitiful, broken man like this. The master of the universe. It's overwhelming, isn't it? He demonstrates his power over sickness. He demonstrates his power over the sea. He demonstrates his power over Satan. What do we take home here? A couple observations and we'll close in prayer. Number one. Jesus is the master of the universe. That's what you get out of Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is the master of the universe. No one else. He is God in the flesh. If you came in here this morning not knowing, not knowing who Jesus is, Matthew chapter 8 gives you many clues to take home with you this afternoon. And I'm fully aware that you came in the morning and it's now afternoon. You ponder this. Who could he be who has power over sickness, over the sea, and over Satan? Only God in the flesh. Number one, what do we get out of Matthew 8? Jesus is the master of the universe. Number two, what do we get out of this message? Never, ever be embarrassed of this Jesus. Never be ashamed to identify with Christ. Why would you? Look at this wonderful Lord Jesus. He takes a lion-like melted down facial man and he gives him an instant face transplant. And he can make molecules come back and he can, take, he can take whatever's happening inside the bloodstream and instantly change the chemistry and heal broken, messed up people. He can take demon-possessed people and restore their sanity and their wholeness of emotion and mind. Thirdly, I want you to see from our passage today, isn't it really evident in our stories today that it's always broken and needy people who come to Jesus? It's always broken and needy people who come. And you know, it it could be that you're not broken and needy today. It could be that you're a man or a woman. It's true. You don't need Jesus. I believe in myself. Wow. I'll decide what I'm going to do. And you're not broken and needy. And it could be that you are critical of broken and needy people. Here's a a word of prophecy for you. Your day is coming and you will be broken and needy. I don't know when and I don't know how. I've been there with people many times. People who were so strong. But then they found themselves rolled down a cliff upside down in a bashed-in car and now they're strapped to an ambulance and their eyes are this wide and they are absolutely terrified because they are now all of a sudden not in control and they are so needy and broken. And I've gotten calls at 2 o'clock in the morning with people wailing because all of a sudden their life came unglued as people inside their home structure did things they never imagined would happen and now they have no idea what to do and they are broken and needy. And I've been with people when the doctor looks at them and he says, you've got little microorganisms floating in your bloodstream and we have no idea what to do with those microorganisms. We can't touch them. We can blast them. We can't change it. We can't stop the production. And all of a sudden, big, strong, self-sufficient, you is sitting there and you know, the doctor says, The best advice I can give you is just to put your affairs in order. It means go pick out a casket, dude. Go chisel what you're going to chisel into your tombstone because you have a little bit of weeks here to write it yourself. After that, somebody else is going to pick all that stuff out for you. I want to tell you something. If you're not broken and needy today, you're right on the edge of it. You are right on the edge of it. And it's only by God's grace that we have our next healthy breath and that we can do push-ups and that we can go to Cracker Barrel today after we leave half of our money in the basket for the Gideons. (laughs) It's only by His grace. And in our story, we see that needy, broken people come to Jesus. And His name is the name above all names. If you're not broken and needy today, you ought to really get broken and needy. You're definitely broken and needy spiritually. That's the most important element of all is to understand our need for a savior from our sin. Finally, from our story, I want you to see that there is no one who is too broken for Jesus to fix. Did you get that out of those gathering, guys? There is no one who is too broken for Jesus to fix. Some of you are giving up on people in your world. Some of you are so disgusted with certain people in your world and, and you would bet your home, your favorite deer rifle and your, and your kids that that person is never, ever, ever going to change. They are beyond repair. No, they're not. Just read Matthew 8 and Mark 5 and see what the master of the universe can do. Let's pray. Father, it's always good to be together. Would you help us to be impressed with Jesus today? We take these things so much for granted. Would you restore our awe? Would you you make us needy and broken today spiritually? Pride creeps in and We're so self-sufficient, we're so wealthy, and we can take care of ourselves. Would you please just help us realize how much we need to be with you? Father, would you put a drive within us like the crazy man at Gadaria after he was healed and got dressed? He goes and jumps in Jesus' boat. Would you just help us to pursue after our Lord Jesus in a whole new way? Father, would you take away any kind of hesitation or shame or embarrassment that we would never be ashamed of this Jesus. We would never be ashamed of his gospel, the transforming power of it, the eternal life-giving aspect of it, that we would walk the narrow way in all humility with no shame. Father, accomplish your purposes. Challenge us if there's someone here today who needs their heart broken and they need to come to Jesus, would you please stir their hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.